Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to another episode of The Dispatches. It is great to be back with you again. If you are new here and you're not already a subscriber, why not hit that little subscribe or follow button, whatever it says in front of you right now, wherever you are listening. If you've been listening for a while and you're enjoying it and you haven't given us a rating yet, then please do that. All of those things really, really help the show. Last but not least, every week we publish a special patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast. That's an episode that is available only to our patrons at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. And if you become a patron with $5 or more per month, so that's about the cost of a cup of coffee, then you get an extra four to five episodes exclusive and available only to our patrons every single month. A huge thank you to all of our patrons it's thanks to you that this and all of our other great content is able to be made. Right, today's topic of conversation. What qualities make political leaders great? And there's a reason why I'm asking this question. It's something that's been on my mind for a few weeks now. And there's been a few things of late that have really, I think, sort of prompted me to uh, to really have this conversation today as part of the podcast. So initially, the first thing that happened was, actually it started, I was going to say a few weeks ago, but realistically, it's probably a couple of months ago now, really. But since the start of this pandemic, and there's been quite a fixation on the pandemic and pandemic-related issues, one of the things that I've heard regularly enunciated from different quarters, different people, different places, is this idea that we need more scientists and, and and if governments were ruled by or governed by scientists or had more scientists, we would be in a better position. And that really, my, the heckles on the back of my neck stand up straight away because I think it's not actually that simple at all. I mean, it really isn't. And uh, secondly, the current politicization of science, um, I'm not sure what you actually mean when you say that. Do you, do you mean... Uh, genuinely, people engaged in the pursuit and the actual practice of, of you know, engaging with the scientific method who might have some background in science, or do you mean people who are going to be engaged in a perhaps a more politicized version of science that tends to uh, not want to question in ways that you don't want questioning to happen? So it's kind of a bit of a fraught area, but there's been a lot more talk about, you know, that being a good quality to have in a political leader. And so that's really what sort of got me started thinking about this or started me thinking about this. But it's not just that as well. There's been a lot of hype over the last few years and before the pandemic even kicked off about our own Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. This is a global hype about her leadership and the the supposed attributes and qualities of her leadership. And certainly um, it, it hasn't, the shine has come off, I think, of late, but certainly leading into the pandemic really in 2019 I think there was a there was a lot of um, there was a lot of hype about that and and globally in some of the big mags there was uh, you know the elite reads there there were all sorts of um, suppositions and arguments being put forward about uh, uh, what a phenomenal leader she was and 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 comments on her skills and this book so I was actually recently in a, a what calls bookstore. And, uh, and there's a book there about, I think it was something about leading with empathy was the title. And and so, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, heck, they even wrote a kid's book that's been doing the rounds about Ardern. I think she got made into a Lego figurine at one point, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a lot of hype about our prime minister. And, and there's certainly been an intense focus on, well, what are the qualities of a leader and why would people think that this would be great leadership as opposed to other qualities that a leader might display. And then in the last week or so, we've had the the whole national party leadership coup, leadership change. Coup sounds so sudden and unexpected and negative, but I think actually this was a, a rather bloodless coup in the sense that no one was really surprised that it happened. It was quite sudden and the timing was a bit unexpected, but no one's surprised. Everyone knew this is the, like the worst 
kept secret in politics now for so many months in New Zealand that uh, eventually Judith Collins was just going to be shuffled off and someone else was going to take her place. And everyone assumed it was going to be Christopher Lux and, and, and lo and behold, it happened. And uh, what's happened now is there's definitely sort of a sense of people pinning their hopes on him and uh, really elevating him uh, as, you know, the... <laughs> the great white hope for the national party and, and, and for others, the, the great hope of New Zealand politics. And, and maybe he can sort of get us out of this quagmire and all that kind of stuff. So there's certainly been a, a lot of talk around the particular attributes and skills that he brings to the job. And the, I guess the, the, um, history of the nature of his particular leadership skills and experience and what that might mean for the country. And, And a lot of comparisons have obviously been made between him and, John Key, because there are some similarities there and and people have sort of picked up on those. One thing I have to say, though, was that I was a little bit underwhelmed uh, with his performance yesterday in Parliament. He came head to head, as all the cool kids say in their journalistic reporting on this with Jacinda Ardern in our house, uh, parliamentary house yesterday. And I have to say I was just a little bit underwhelmed. And one article I've seen this morning actually summed things up for me, I think, quite nicely, or certainly echoed my sentiments and feelings, was that the winner of the clash between um, Jacinda Ardern and Christopher Luxon was actually David Seymour. And I, f- I actually thought that was true because I thought that the questions that he asked were more pertinent and really they got to the point. And one of the things I do worry about here is that, that looking at Christopher Luxon, is there actually going to be a genuine point of difference here? Is there going to be someone who brings fresh ideas or is it just more of the same sort of bureaucratic response with a different colour tie on that same sort of bureaucratic response. So we'll see how things go, but that was that's a side note. Obviously got nothing to do with the main topic here today. So the question is that I really want to focus in on then today in this, this episode is, well, what qualities make political leaders great? If, if I could take a step back first, though, and, and get you to do a little thought experiment, this is something that I do whenever I am invited to speak to groups about leadership and to share my thoughts on that. And I always start them with a little thought experiment. And it goes like this. Imagine a political leader. And I'll give you a set of attributes. And just imagine any leader, male, female, doesn't really matter. But I'll give you a set of attributes. And I want you to contemplate whether or not you think this particular person would qualify as being a good political leader. Are are they someone who's you know, you'd say, yeah, this is a good leader. So first of all, let's say this person uh, comes from a, a good, solid, stable family background and is committed to, to family values. Um, this person is someone who is educated, well-educated, and has achieved in higher education as well. This is someone who has uh, not just thought about themselves, but has also been involved in military service for their country. Um, this is someone who has decided that they also want to give back in some way. So they've got themselves involved in politics and they've chosen to serve in that arena, in the arena of of political leadership. Uh, And let's say that during their time in politics, during their tenure, they've inherited a very, very dysfunctional and broken uh, society. There's very, very serious poverty and inequality and economic harm that's being done. And this person has brought some pretty amazing transformation to their country uh, economically, that has allowed uh, those inequalities and that poverty to be, um, you know, not absolutely ended. You can never absolutely end poverty, but has has d- just um, done a massively good work, uh, a phenomenal work in actually eradicating um, the worst excesses of that, and has actually brought and uh, helped to pull a whole lot of people out of of poverty and economic hardship. But they're not just someone who's perhaps obsessed with economics. They're not just a one-trick pony. They're also someone who has a concern for the well-being of animals and and the environment. And so they have also uh, contributed to, during their time in politics, to passing some of the most advanced animal welfare and um, uh, environmentally focused laws uh, to protect the environment uh, that are known in the world at the time. Now, if I said to you, this is a person, doesn't matter, male, female, imagine, whoever you like, and I said, these are a set of skills and attributes that they bring to the job, would you think that that would qualify that person as being a good leader? Now, wherever I do this thought experiment, 
generally what happens is you get a group of people who um, put their hands up and say, yeah, I think that would qualify them as being a good leader. You get a, a much larger group who sort of are a little bit suspicious about what's going on here, and they tend to either hang back or say, I'm not certain, or um, I think this is a trick question. And by the way, they're very prudent to do that because it is actually a bit of a trick question. And the reason why I do that thought experiment in this particular way is because all of those attributes and qualities that I have just listed there and described to you, they were all attributes and qualities of Adolf Hitler. And at that point, when I tell people that, they all of a sudden, there's a bit of a light bulb moment for some people in the room where they recognize, ah, okay, this is interesting. So I need to start thinking about leadership, perhaps in a new and different kind of way. It, it is, And so when I say good leadership, uh, when I use that phrase, good leadership, I don't just mean some utilitarian framing of the word good. And so, so good leadership, I think, really hangs on the use of the word good, how you are using and interpreting that word good. Because if you hang it purely on a pure sort of utilitarian, functionalist type basis, you could say, well, Hitler did function in a utilitarian way. There was definitely utility in his leadership. He achieved things. He got lots and lots of people to buy in, to follow him. He did bring uh, radical forms of transformation to his society. And so you'd, if, if, if you're just looking at it purely based on utility and leadership is sort of reduced to an exercise of convincing people to follow you or to buy into your particular vision, then sure, you'd have to say he was a quote-unquote good leader. But I would argue that is a failure to understand good leadership. And, and so this is about, really, I think this hangs on the use of the word good, but also obviously leadership's involved in this as well. So I think a fundamental principle of any leadership, but in particular, I think really in the political space, which is what we're talking about today, where you know, I want to focus in on, but this is true of any leadership, is that I think good leaders always lead people in the right direction. And that's capital R-I-G-H-T. So this is not relativistic. This is not purely utilitarian. Can I influence people? Can I attract a huge following? Can I be like the Pied Piper who is able to play a magical flute that enraptures people and um, basically puts them in a trance and they all follow me? And then it's, uh, you know, anybody's guess where we're going to end up. Well, I would argue, you know, in a sense, people are being led but there's not good leadership there because I would argue that good leadership is about leading people in the right direction and the right direction is, is when a leader leads people deeper into goodness, truth and beauty or leads them at least closer to goodness, truth and beauty where they can begin to make a decision or a choice for themselves about whether they will choose to take the, the ultimate step and sort of really lean into those things because a, a good leader is not going to force you into those sorts of scenarios. They really can't do that anyway because what is ultimately required, I think, of people to be moral and to embrace goodness and truth and beauty is there has to be an ascent of the will. You have to give yourself to these things. So to be forced into something is, is just not quite cutting the mustard here. But good leadership, I think, is really about leading people in the right direction. And I think if we can start to frame and think about leadership in that way, all of a sudden we recognize, heck, there's a lot more at stake here than just utility. There's a lot more at stake in, than just sort of convincing people to follow you anywhere. And, and also you realize that in actual fact, good leadership operates in all um, stratas of society across all levels of hierarchy and society, leadership should be present. You know, from from the sort of the the humblest and smallest of people who might only have one or two people that they associate with on a regular basis, they can still show profoundly good and wondrous leadership. Just like a person who might be, I don't know, president of the world. Thank goodness, there's no such thing. But you know, president of everyone on planet Earth. Uh, that they, they can also uh, show good leadership or fail to show good leadership. So, so what are the qualities then that matter in our political leaders? What really matters? Well, let me start by saying what I think 
we don't want the, the qualities that you definitely want to tick off your list and say, these are absolutely not on my bucket list. They should not be there. And they are troubling, worrying signs wherever you see them. So the first one is any sort of um, political messiah or political messiah type complex. And this can be as simple as paternalism, I think. There's a sense and a right sense for parents in which they see themselves as having a duty to care for and even save their own children. But when you were talking about politics, that um, that sort of approach to citizens who are free, adult, rational human beings, there's a there's a problem, I think, when that is occurring and that shouldn't be happening. I think a leader is is missing uh, something about human dignity and the nature of human dignity is to call the person deeper into their own sort of um, their own sense of of self-awareness and conscience and and rational intellect and free will. And so they are being encouraged and called into a formation of self and then following on from that formation and goodness and truth and beauty, their, their actions will hopefully flow out of that. But when the leader is treating them in a sort of a paternalistic way or like they are the Messiah, so any sort of political messiahship or paternalism uh, is a problem where, where they perhaps see themselves or certainly are presented in that way um, as being sort of the saviour, the answer, the great leader, you know, all those kinds of things. I think any sort of cult of personality is a problem. Um, now, sometimes cult of personality can be unavoidable. So you have a leader who's just a very uh, good person, a genuinely good leader, a good person, and they are much beloved as a result of their character. And there's, there is a, you'd have to say there's a certain love and regard that they're sort of held in high regard and it's widely held by a lot of people. That, that, that's actually a, a good positive thing, but cult of personality is sort of a little bit different where it's all built around a singular person. And, and again, it really leans towards that political messiahship. It, it leans and leans itself towards a sort of paternalism. It's, it's not a good thing. Um, human persons are frail. Human persons are not uh, infallible. We are very, very fallible. And there's a real danger here. And one of the great dangers is that we fail to recognize that I think the best of political leaders are people who always recognize that they have a, there's a higher calling to the human existence. They are leaders who recognize that there should be a higher accountability than just the government, just the state, or just the prime minister or president. And so I think that's something that really helps to, to, um, to perhaps uh, curb the worst excesses, even when you have a, a, a much beloved leader, that they are always operating from a space of humility. We'll talk more about that, that particular point in just a moment when we talk about qualities that really matter, the things we do want. Another thing we don't want is, is any sort of utopianism. I think you need a leader who actually needs to be uh, able to, well, not just recognize, but grapple with human nature and the challenges of being a moral person and a moral society. And morality and popularity don't always go together. Sometimes to, to be moral, you have to do hard things. And um, that, that's not easy. And utopianism doesn't tend to lend itself to that. Utopianism tends to set up this ideal and believe that the really the impossible ideal can be established. And it's just a matter of inflicting enough of the right suffering at the right time, effectively. You know, we've got to break a few eggs to make an omelette, that kind of attitude. And then we will we'll get through that period. You know, if we just fight the right war and slaughter the right people, then somehow we will get to a point of perf perfection and equilibrium where greatness will be achieved. And so any sort of utopianism, and it doesn't have to be that extreme. It can be utopianism in other ways. Um, ironically, I think in the current COVID response, there is a sense of utopianism with the things like vaccine passports and the exclusionary nature of those sorts of things. There's a there's a sense of utopianism in this in this idea, this building of a of a of a of a safe, free society. Um, in 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 a very small way, it's not you know it's not a huge scale, but it's there. It's definitely there. Um, and I think you need a leader who is able to grapple with the complexities and the the realities of human nature, and in order to, to do that, they've first got to recognize, I think this is where you get leaders who will shun utopianism, is because they recognize in themselves that they are ultimately very flawed critters. And that makes them dangerous when they wield a lot of power. And so it, it, it's a really good sign when they would reject utopianism. 
because it, it means that they've recognized something important about themselves and human fallibility and also something very, very important about the exercise of power. And the greater the level of power that you wield and the closer you are to that, the more corrupting the influence of that actually is. And not can be, but actually is. And in almost all situations, even in small ways, it has a corrupting influence that you've got to constantly be on guard against and constantly fighting back against as well. Another thing that you don't want, I think, is you don't want technocracy. You don't want a technocrat for a leader. And technocracy is this notion of rule by science or by technical knowledge as the sort of the primary good that's held up and that's elevated. And it's 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 really the technical knowledge which is sort of, it becomes effectively, it really does become a type of magisterium, a type of, uh, it's more than simply science or technical knowledge now. Uh, or, you know, that's being employed here, you've now got into a place where it's almost like magic or religion, where a theocracy, rather not religion, but but a, a rule by, um, effectively, by a sort of magical or sort of theological uh, decree. And, and what happens is science becomes elevated well above its station and its capabilities, and it, it gets turned into science or technical knowledge, and expertise gets turned into some sort of almost like a priestly caste where you are part of the priestly group if you have these skills and your voice apparently and your ability to think through issues uh, is more valuable, more important and less uh, fallible than anybody else's. And of course, that's you know, none of that's true. And, and the reality is that when you grapple with big issues, even in the midst of a pandemic where you know science is a useful tool in that, the simple fact is it's not just science that matters. Uh, you're dealing with human persons and there's a whole lot of complexity and there's a broad spectrum of uh, aspects and attributes and qualities and things about personhood and societies of persons that matter and have to be considered when you are making decisions about this. And then last but not least is you don't want a bureaucrat. And what bureaucracy does is it puts procedure over persons. So the procedure is more important than the person. And what happens is bureaucracy, I think, is just a horrible, some have called it like the blob. It just, you know, it's, you're playing whack-a-mole. You think you've destroyed it one area, then it just magically pops its head up somewhere else. And, and it's the sort of this blob that changes shape to envelop uh, all sorts of situations and just bog them down and mire them in this goopy, slow, bureaucratic mess. And so bureaucracy, you know, um, like procedures do matter, but procedures should always be at the service of the human person and the higher goods. And if they're not, if they exist for their own sake, and this is what you've got with bureaucracy, or we elevate procedure, um, you know, a lot of harm is done. And, and ironically, they, you know, procedures, they're often sold as bringing safety and freedom and everything else, but really they, they, often that's not the case. So, you know, certain procedures, procedures are helpful to establishing a more um, safety conducive for, you know, perhaps a, a bit more um, of, a, of an evil, even and level playing field. So you could argue human freedoms are benefited to a degree. But once you start to go beyond that, they actually become a restrictor of, of freedom. They become a thing of, of serious inequality, actually. And it really becomes those who have power or wealth, realistically, probably wealth gives them power, but those who have the power to actually navigate and overcome the procedures very easily, they have all of the freedoms and the power and the control. And those who don't, are stuffed, basically. They are at the mercy of the bureaucrats who are the, the men and women of the procedure, whatever the procedures happen to be that you're engaging with. So those are the things, I think, to start with that you would say are qualities or things that you don't want, I think, uh, in a leader. And sometimes they sort of crop up. They're, they're sort of, they, they stick their head up every now and then. But And it's I think that any sort of leadership involves a constant grappling with these things. But if they are dominant features and characteristics, I think you've got a problem there. So, of course, that brings us to the, uh, I think, important and pressing question. Well, what are some of the qualities then, Brendan, that you think really matter when it comes to the question of political leadership? What are the qualities that we want in our leaders? And I, I think, again, this is not just political leadership. I think this is for church leadership. This is um, about club leadership. This is any sort of leadership, leadership in the home, whatever it is. I think these skills, that they're universal and, and, they, and they really matter, most of them. Uh, one or two of them are specifically political and specifically related to the current context we find ourselves here in the West at the moment. So let me just go through this list. 
First on my list is I think we actually need character. I think that's a quality that really matters in our political leaders, and that's something I look for is character. Are they a person of character, and do they have a commitment to virtue? And this character and this commitment to virtue will be witnessed not in their words, but in their actions. Let me stress that again. It's in their actions, not their words. You are looking for substance, not sound here. Because one of the things about politics that politicians are notorious for is sound. They can talk the hind legs of a donkey and tell you all about the how wonderful the virtues are and how important character is and integrity, etc., etc. But if there's no substance underpinning that, it is just hollow, vacuous words. And so you need to look at their actions and what do you see in their actions. It's not simply in their words. What are the policies they are implementing? It doesn't matter if they are implementing a policy that lacks virtue or that is exclusionary, and then they turn around and say, well, no, I'm really inclusive and it's about a welcoming, open society. If their policies don't reflect that, I'm sorry, there is a major disconnect of some kind gone on there. They either don't actually understand what those words they are saying really mean, or they don't care. They just don't care. It's literally just talking points. It's all vacuous PR spin and PR speak. And so character matters, a commitment to virtue. Things like humility really matters. I think courage is an important virtue. Love is the greatest of all. And I mean self-giving love that seeks the good of the other. These are all, there's lots of others too. I think integrity is a really important one. Um, Are they consistent? Do you see character in their private life? I mean, I, I remember when the whole Bill Clinton sex scandal broke and there was this refrain that was constantly repeated by people who were saying, well, it's just a private matter. It doesn't really matter what he does in his own private life, to which I say, no, that, that's never been true. That has never, ever been true. If, if you actually care about having good leaders who reflect uh, virtue and who are leaders of character, then absolutely their private life does matter. Because if they are doing one thing in public and another thing in private, that you know things that are completely opposed to each other, and in this case, you're talking about a man who has made a public vow to his wife and is then violating that sacred vow that he's made between him and his wife, and he's doing it by the way in the Oval Office as well. So I hardly think this is private, but you know that's just because no one saw you doing it, it doesn't mean that it's you know he's in the office of the office, you know, the office of president, and this is the Oval Office of that office, that political office. Um, but leaving that aside, even if you'd done it somewhere else privately, what you've got there is you've got a man who has shown that his character is seriously deficient. And so w- what's happened is this is a man who says and acts one way in public and then uh, and says and acts in a completely contradictory way in private. Integrity is about who you are when no one else is watching. And a leader who is willing to violate that most fundamental and sacred of vows, a marriage vow, between this person that you supposedly love and give yourself to totally, completely, without equal and exclusively for life, a person who's willing to violate that vow, I'm sorry, but you couldn't trust that person with far less important vows, like the vow to be a good and faithful president who will execute that office with a commitment to virtue and a concern for the good of the people. His character is actually telling you something really, really important there. So I think virtue matters and character really, really does matter. Next quality I think matters is a clear moral philosophy. Now, it's not necessarily like they need to enunciate what that philosophy might be, but I think it helps if we've got some clarity about, well, what is the actual moral moral philosophy, the moral framework, the moral compass that is directing your actions and your policy choices as a leader. Now, I might not always agree with your moral philosophy. You might embrace Kantianism or you you might embrace utilitarianism. It, it, it might be all sorts of different things that you might have chosen to embrace. But it, it does, I think, give us, the people, a bit of clarity and it's a helpful thing to understand, well, at least we know what we're grappling with there so we can have some sense of what is actually going to happen when a person is in political leadership and exactly what we're dealing with. I think the great danger and the real problems that you see often are around uh, leaders who it is literally about power and holding on to power. There is no clear moral philosophy governing their actions and 
So when the wind starts blowing in a different direction, all of a sudden their principles start shifting and blowing in that same direction as well. And all of a sudden, what are supposedly principles, you realise are not actually principles at all. They are for sale. They are for sale to the highest bidder, whether that be a lobby group or whether that be the highest number of voters, because they'll do whatever it takes to stay in power. That's a really dangerous situation to be in. That is not good leadership. That really isn't good leadership. It's a very dangerous sort of leadership, not just because of the volatility of it and the uncertainty of it, but it's also very vulnerable to corruption in ways that are just not good. You know, a principled leader who is willing to take a stand uh, really, really does matter. I think that, and, and at the very least, there needs to be clarity, I think. And I, I think that moral philosophy has been lost to leaders because of the nature of modern politics and modern society. We haven't prized it. We haven't valued it at all. For me, I think, uh, which brings me to my third point, something that I think is really prized, if you can find this in a leader, is a grounding in and a commitment to natural law. Uh, if you have a leader who has a commitment to natural law, I think that's a really good and beautiful and very, very important thing, actually. They're like hen's teeth nowadays. There's sort of so few and far between. Uh, certainly the higher up the food chain you go, it's it's not as common as it might have once been or or as commonly regarded. Now, there's, there's different pathways that you can get or expressions of that natural law tradition. I am going to say, as someone who is part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, that I think the Judeo-Christian expression of natural law is the pinnacle of that uh, important um, approach to human dignity and the human person and to morality and governance, etc. Um, I think the fullness of that, what Christianity brings to that with Christ, who is the incarnated God, God who becomes man becomes a human being, takes on human form, becomes one of us and elevates humanity in its fullness, including bodies and everything. So it's not just some angelism that's only interested in souls, but the whole of the human person takes on a whole profound dignity and all of that. I think I think all of that really, really matters, but it's not necessarily that pathway. You might be someone who has an affinity for the Stoics or for Aristotle, or you might be someone who has a strong commitment to the more modern uh, authentic human rights traditions, or one of those, uh, you know, traditional uh, movements. Like a very clear one is the the uh, civil rights movement in America. That is a that's very much grounded in uh, some really important natural law truths, and human dignity is sort of first and foremost amongst that. Unfortunately, a lot of modern human rights have been corrupted. Now there's been a corruption of that, where the natural law has been cast aside. And really what you have is relativism instead or might makes right. And you've got people claiming things as rights that are not actually rights at all and would actually violate natural law. But they are claiming simply their wants and their own desires as rights. And so there's been a bit of a corruption of that. But there are still people who have come from and embraced those sorts of traditions. You can see that there is a, a grounding in and a commitment to natural law. And I think that matters because natural law elevates governance and an understanding of laws and policy making that it needs to be more than simply rule by law. It, it is rule of law. So And, and that, that law that we are all governed by is higher than just the laws of the land. So it's not legal positivism. It's not the, the lawyers who make the morality in your society. It's the morality you know, given to us by natural law that should shape the laws that are produced in our society. So it's important, I think, to have leaders who understand that. Otherwise, again, they're blown about by every wind which happens to blow and and whichever way um, the systems of power and the structures of power want to take them, they'll happily go along with that to, to cling to the power that they happen to enjoy as part of political leadership. Another important factor that I think really matters is life experience. And it was interesting, I remember, uh, uh, I was going to say a couple of years ago, but it's really a couple of elections ago, isn't it, where Jacinda Ardern was standing, and this was the election where Winston Peters here in New Zealand handed her the election. He made her queen. He held only 7% of the vote, but he was the pivotal difference, and so he was able to choose who would be prime minister, and he got to anoint her, despite the fact that she didn't actually win as much of the vote as um, Bill English did, leader of the National Party. Uh, there was quite a big wide margin between the two of them. And so a lot of people have rightly pointed out that the moral position would have been to to go with Bill English. But our system allows a completely different set of chicaneries and, and um, misbehaviours to occur. 
and Winston Peters had a pip. He had the pip with the National Party, and based on his personal vendetta, he anointed her as Queen. And I remember in the lead-up to that particular election, though, several times I said and expressed out loud and publicly that I felt that it, it would be better to have a political leader, a prime minister, who had actually who had children. So I, I, I was looking at that stage, we were talking about Bill English, who's married with kids and uh, uh, older kids as well. And so um, I expressed this out loud, and, and some people, and some who I was even quite surprised by, really took offence to this. So I said, no, no, it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean anything. Well, it actually does mean something. It means a lot. It really does. And I say this as someone who is a father and a husband, and there's a whole set of life experiences that come with, um, I think, with getting married or committing yourself to, perhaps it might not be marriage, but I think of so people like, for example, Catholic or Anglican priests who might commit themselves to a lifelong celibate vocation, but that they've actually committed themselves to something that requires total self-giving. I think having children really does matter. It transforms you in ways and it changes your leadership. I've certainly experienced this. And it changes your vision of reality. It softens you. It, it actually brings important things to you as a person that will completely influence your political leadership for the better, like drastically for the better, I believe. And, and I think also um, having life experience is something that, that actually matters. So having age under your belt, the older you get, you do, you know, you don't become perfect and you don't become mistake free, but there are important granules of wisdom that just become imbued into who you are and that flow out of your leadership. You you know what hills to die on or when to die on a hill, when not to die on it. You know not to sweat the small stuff, for example. There's lots of wisdom that comes from that. So I think life experience matters. And we live in an age now where we've got this sort of um, celebritization and deification of youth. And it's like young people, man, they're the way of the future. Now, yes, young people are our future, ironically, in a culture where we have lots of abortion and we're not having many kids. And then we throw around slogans like young people are our future. And I'm like, well, uh, uh, do we really believe that? Because well, I'm not sure we really value that. We don't treat our young particularly well. And we don't really prize having them over having holidays and cars and batches and things like that. But, um, you know, it's true, they are, they are our future in that sense. But, but this is really, really important. Young people, um, what they bring is they bring passion. But you don't just need passion in a leader, you need. And so there's a, there's a place where that must be heard and observed. And we must, I think, listen. A good leader will do that. But passion also needs to be tempered by prudence and by the virtues. And, 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 and I think this is where, you know, life experience uh, can not always, but can. And again, I think a lot of this goes back to the life experience you've had and whether or not it's been grounded in virtue and a prioritizing of character and commitment to character and, and a living a good moral life. And I think if that has been your norm, generally for a lot of people it is, then as you get older, you do get a wisdom that comes with that age. And I think that really, really matters. Now, ironically, I copped a lot of flack about saying that I really wasn't that comfortable with Jacinda Ardern because I felt she lacked the life experience, and 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 also this was workplace experience outside of um, the the political arena as well. But also I think the whole thing of marriage and family for me I think that's uh, these things matter, and I understand that because I was in that state of life and I understood what it had done to me. Now here's the irony: after copping flack for that, Jacinda Ardern obviously had her daughter after she became prime minister. And what was interesting was I remember reading an article, a media article she did after the birth of her daughter, where she talked about how having a, ch a child had completely transformed her leadership. Her view of the world now was profoundly different. Her leadership had changed as a result. And I was like, bingo, I wish other people could have seen this. But, you know, such is life. That's just me um, <laughs> wanting to, you know, I was going to say, but that's my human pride and my human frailty. Hey, did you see that? Did you see what she said there? <laughs> that's backing me up. Remember that time you criticized me? Well, I was right. <laughs> um, but but the, the, there's, there's a great profound truth in this that really, really does matter about life experience and particular types of, of life experience that I think really, really matter. The next quality that matters is I think you need a sound political philosophy. Now, there is no perfect political philosophy. In a sense, we are all grappling in the dark to one degree or another. But despite the fact that there is no perfect 
political philosophy or political system, there are certainly some evil ones and there are certainly some ideas and um, structural uh, forms when it comes to politics and, and governance that are evil, that are, uh, or, or at the very least, those that are not evil, uh, there are others that are unhelpful. And so you want to avoid those. Um, I think when you talk about well, what does a sound political philosophy, again, notice the word sound, not perfect. What does a sound political philosophy look like? Well, I think, again, I go back to that natural law tradition. And I think the human person and human dignity has to be front and center. So it's not simply about economics. Now, economics is part of that because part of human functioning and freedom and uh, you know, outworkings of human dignity requires things like the dignity of work and obviously trade and economics and you know, alleviating poverty. They're all factors in this. So economics, I mean, economics is really just people uh, journeying together and in, 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 in commerce, right? But again, if the priority is on the, the sort of the profit, the economic markers and the economic drivers, and we forget the human dignity of the human persons who are involved in the economic trade, there's a problem there. Um, it's uh, a political philosophy uh, that, that sound is one that's not focused on function and functionality. Um, the human person is not just reduced to some part of a collective who serves a function of some greater collective or some function at the behest of the ideology. The human person and their individual human dignity does matter, every single human being, every single human person. And lastly, it's, it's not about pure utility or utilitarianism, which has really been, I think, the dominant corrupter of politics, uh, certainly in the last hundred years or so, really since its arrival on the scene, I think it's been a huge corrupting influence, but more so when you start having things like technology and power and wealth at uh, levels and scales and advancement that we've never seen before, all of a sudden um, those things really outpaced um, you know, the advances were, uh, and the, the changes outpaced morality. And they also came at a time when morality and a commitment to morality and virtue started to break down. And so um, you, you get, uh, so there's a sort of a utopianism that really is at play uh, at the end of um, the 1800s and the early 1900s. That all comes crashing down in a screaming heap with the advent of World War One and then World War Two, and then following on from that, the gulags of socialism and Marxism. And so, for example, socialism and Marxism, they are political philosophies that you would want to avoid. Socialism is a, really, it's a corruption, a co-opting and a corruption of the Christian gospel about care for the poor. And what it does is it takes that and it politicizes that and it corrupts it. And it sort of tries to put the veneer of Christianity on top of something that isn't good. And so um, what happens, though, is that utilitarianism sort of starts to become the dominant force once this this sort of the the utopianism is brought crashing down when we realize, oh my gosh, look at these evil ways that we still treat each other despite our technology. And you start to get a, a, a rebellion and a backlash against that. And that makes things ironically not better, but even worse. And ultimately what we've sort of ended up with now is a situation of utilitarianism where when times are, are, are going okay, it, the utilitarianism generally doesn't, it's not too intrusive. But when you start to get into times of crisis or war or pandemic, all of a sudden this ugly, horrible, demonic beast called utilitarianism raises its head. And so many of the problems we're grappling with right now in the response to COVID, particularly the later response, really, but in general, the response to COVID, a lot of the problems have their genesis in this demon of utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number as if somehow that is a moral truth that is above reproach. And we've just sort of elevated this thing as if it's A, above reproach, or B, the only way to govern, which is absolutely not true. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it is, it's, it's a great tragedy, I think, of this modern era. And it also has a bearing on how governments will use things like the technology and the money and the power and things like that at their disposal. You know, the, just because you've got the ability to make nuclear weapons, it doesn't make you, uh, mean that you should, and let alone should use them. But utilitarianism doesn't really care about any of that. It starts uh, from a very different position, and it says, well, how do you achieve the greatest good for the greatest number? And if we have to drop a nuclear bomb or two on a whole entire 
country full of people, let's just do it because that'll produce the greatest good for the greatest number. And all of a sudden, actual morality goes right out the window and this, um, you know, uh, there's this great corruption of political philosophy. And so I think political philosophy and morality are intimately tied together. And really, I think a sound political philosophy is one that is grounded in the importance, the profound dignity of every human person, respecting and protecting that dignity. The next quality I think that really, or I was going to say quality, but it's really an issue that I think matters is, and this is something I think that we underappreciate and underestimate, but it's something that is absolutely, I think, should be on our radar, and that is, what is a leader's approach to abortion? And ironically, even within Christian circles, um, we have completely undervalued this question. We have gone out of our way, I think, to sort of fudge and flubber this issue. It's because it's controversial for people that, that, you know, as I said recently on another podcast I was on, I was a guest on the Thinking Matters New Zealand podcast recently, and they said, oh, you know, you, you are in the public space grappling with some controversial issues. And I said, yeah, they are controversial to some people, but to me, they're just issues, and I often take that fact for granted, but they are just issues. They're part of the human experience. They're moral questions that need an answer, and I think we insert the controversy ourselves, but one of the things I think that's happened, particularly in Christian circles, is we haven't grappled well. We're so scared of the controversy, and we have held up unity as the greatest good, when in actual fact that's not true. If we're all unified around a bad idea or a wrong idea, unity is not your friend in that situation. You know, you need to cut away the cancer. And so um, I, I think we've, we've, we've really flubbed this. We, we haven't done a great job of this, um, but it really does matter. And so as a result, we've sort of underappreciated in general because there hasn't been even a single voice in our society, which normally probably would be the Christian church, vocally and loudly saying, hey, our approach to abortion as a government, as a people, really does matter. You know, Mother Teresa just summed it up so beautifully and perfectly and very powerfully when she talked about how uh, abortion is this great corrupter of a society. And it's when you accept it and and you um, have this normalized behavior of abortion, what you're actually teaching your people is that violence is an acceptable means to get what you want. And so this really, really does matter. And I think we underestimate how much this matters. Um, you're talking about the most vulnerable people in our society when you talk about unborn human beings inside their mother's wombs. It doesn't get any more vulnerable and voiceless than that. They can't even express themselves because they don't have a voice that can be heard. And so this really, really matters. And so a political leader and their approach to abortion, I look at very, very carefully because it tells me a lot of really important things. It's actually a very important litmus test, I think, for their moral philosophy and their character and their virtue in general. So a person who is holds opposition to abortion, or even I would say in the current political climate, has a clear abortion concern. So they might vote in ways that I wouldn't agree with, but they always push back against the extremes, which are now becoming more normalized. So in New Zealand last year, for example, Jacinda Ardern, uh, one of her pet projects that uh, her government passed, this is her personal pet project, was the very extreme Abortion Legislation Act. And that Abortion Legislation Act introduced abortion up to and even during birth, according to the legal experts, if you could find an abortionist willing to carry that out, uh, into our country. And it, it's extreme. And there were amendments put forward by good MPs who tried to curb the worst excesses of this piece of legislation. So, you know, things like a requirement that if a a child was born alive that after a botched abortion that there would be a a good standard of care would have to be provided by law. That was rejected. Um, a ban on sex selective abortions, you know, based on the gender of the baby, that was rejected. So all of these sort of extremes just were normalized and were pushed through. And, and a lot of our current MPs actually voted for that. It was a personal pet project of Jacinda Ardern. And so when Jacinda Ardern talks about kindness and the vulnerable I, as a thinking person, have to filter her words through her actual actions. And her actions in particular, this was her pet project. So it's not something she can sort of just say, well, it just happened and I happened to be there and I cast a vote. It was her personal pet project. She drove it. She introduced it. She ensured that it was ushered through Parliament. And so I have to filter her words about kindness and inclusivity and care for the vulnerable and the marginalized through that action. You have to. It's, I think it's deficient not to do that. And so a person's approach to that tells me a lot about how they regard the vulnerable in our society. 
It tells me what they think about violence and whether violence, as Mother Teresa said, is an acceptable solution. It tells me what they think about uh, power and how it should be used because effectively what you've got with abortion is might makes right. Those with all the power get to decide what happens to the vulnerable. And there's also these grave logical, ethical and human rights uh, inconsistencies in abortion. And, and so the biggest and most glaring one is that people talk about my body, my choice, but you can't invoke bodily rights at the same time as you are invoking bodily rights for one person so that, that that can lead to the destruction of the body of another human being, which is what happens every time there's an abortion. So if, if bodily rights are that sacred and sacrosanct, and I believe they are a very sacred thing, then they are for everybody, for all human beings, not just the powerful ones who are already born. They're for all of us. And so when people are invoking bodily rights to destroy the bodily of another, a body of another human being, to, to completely trample their rights, their bodily rights, then you know that there's this grave logical, ethical inconsistency there, and it's a clear violation of human rights. And all of a sudden you realize human rights to this person are actually quite malleable. It's not really about rights, it's about power. And, and it's about power making morality. It's about might makes right, not truth and goodness making right. And by the way, that's why I think a lot of people today are kind of so shocked by some of the stuff that's happening with like vaccine mandates and coercion, bodily coercion and, and forcing people out of jobs and vaccine passports and all these kinds of things. And people are invoking the very same slogans that Jacinda Ardern used, you know, my body, my choice. And they're sort of some people are a bit uh, unclear or not understanding why the government wouldn't get this. Well, you know, because they've had a previous commitment to my body, my choice with with abortion, well, that's precisely the point, because abortion isn't actually about bodies and choices. Abortion is actually about the powerful people getting to choose what happens to the bodies of the vulnerable people. And so you're seeing that same pattern repeated now. So don't be surprised by that. And so I think that really, really matters. Last but not least is the question of, well, Brendan, when it comes to qualities that matter, what about technical expertise? Because as you started the show with, a lot of people now are talking about, well, wouldn't it be great if we had more scientists? To which I say, well, hold the phone, because I think what's more important than actual technical knowledge is character and commitment to virtue. I think those things really, really matter. And by the way, someone who has a, a good commitment to virtue and is a person of character they will lead in such a way where they will have the humility to recognize the limitations of their own skill set and they will seek competent outside advice. And I think that really, really matters. I think also a person of character doesn't just get a whole lot of yes men and yes women around them in their advisory circle. I think that's one of the things that's a bit of a problem right now. I think you need to hear from the dissenting voices, especially in a time of crisis. And so a person who has virtue is going to be willing to entertain and listen to those dissenting voices and, and not simply get themselves stuck in a myopic echo chamber. And so I think what's more important than technical expertise is actually ca character and commitment to virtue. But I do think that there is a place and an important place for technical expertise. Um, I don't think that a government full of scientists would actually be a good thing at all. I think you'd end up with, well, you would end up with almost certainly technocracy. Uh, Star Trek might have been a fantasy story about, uh, you know, what technocracy could look like, but in actual fact, it's not really what techno what a technocratic rule would actually look like at all. And a, a, technocratic, a technocratic culture would be a really, really um, horrible thing to live under, actually, uh, in, in the truth of things. It's not like Star Trek at all. Um, but I think some technical expertise definitely uh, does help. I think, interestingly, in my experience and having been involved with and witnessed up close and personal politics, certainly in this country over the last few years, a bit more intimately, is I've recognized that there's, there's actually quite an abundance of lawyers. I think they still are. It could have changed actually with the last government, but they were previously. The, the most commonly represented profession in parliament was lawyers. Well, certainly it was previously. And I think that matters. And, and one thing I've realized actually is, is that why having legal skills matters is because you're making laws and there's a whole lot of stuff that really matters. Now, it doesn't make you immune to corruption or other problems, but I think that that particular trade or technical expertise in the law, I think I've seen it. It actually, it actually serves a valuable purpose uh, when it comes to um, political leadership and political governance. But the other thing I've noticed, which is interesting about lawyers, is generally, I say generally, those who are not ideologically corrupted what, what lawyers seem to have is a good grounding in this idea of 
as lawyers, you seek advice. So I'd imagine a lot of that stems from the fact that when, uh, first of all, law is a very um, uh, different sort of, um, it, it's a technical skill where you have lots of different skill sets. Different lawyers have different expertise. And it's quite common, it's the norm for a lawyer who might specialize in property but who knows nothing about criminal law to seek the advice of the criminal law expert. So that's number one. So they're used to seeking expert advice. Secondly, I think the profession of law, very commonly they have to draw on outside experts um, in most areas of law. They have to go to outside experts in order to build a case or to um, to produce, a, make a claim or whatever it might be that they are doing with their legal skills. They have to seek outside expertise, and there's a. It seems as a result of all of that, there is a high regard and a respect for seeking outside counsel, and that's very normalised, and it's actually held up as good behaviour within the profession of law. And I've seen that; it's quite amazing. It's a, it's actually quite a good thing, and I, I, I it was really uh, something I found very attractive about the practice of law, the way that that happens. And it's interesting that that's actually formed also within the law community, the community of lawyers. These diverse people with diverse politics and everything else, but they have really high regard for each other and their expertises that they bring. It's, it's quite an interesting thing to see as an outsider. Um, so I think that that would be a helpful skill. And, and I think, look, people who've got science or medicine or whatever it is, I think that's good. But it's not just those people because, uh, you know, governance shouldn't be by and for a group of people. It's, it's by and for everyone. So you want carpenters in there. You want ex-policemen and women in there. Uh, you want people who have been teachers in there. I think all of the skills kind of matter. And I actually think, because you, what you don't want is you don't want technocracy. You want moral leaders of, of character and virtue. That's the most important thing. But I think in actual fact, possibly, you'd, well, I don't know whether it's a trade-off or even more important. It's not simply a technical expertise. I think solid work experience is probably even more important. So I, I don't think it's that great a situation to have a, someone who might have earned a law degree or a science degree and then they've gone straight into politics and they've never had experience in the real world at the coalface trying to make a living, trying to build a business, trying to raise a family. They've just gone straight into the political arena. They might have all the technical expertise in the world, but that solid work experience, it really, really does matter. Your whole view of things changes and your variety of experiences that being in a workplace brings, all those kinds of things, they really, really do matter. I think it's the interaction with other people and the problem-solving aspect of it that you don't get if you just have a degree, a dry technical knowledge, and then you go into the world of politics. So I think that really, really matters. One last thing to finish with, and uh, this was just a... I don't want to say off-track, it's related to leadership, but it was a comment that... Christopher Luxon made in a newspaper article, an interview that he gave a couple of days ago, where he was being challenged over the last week or so, he's copped a bit of flack for his um, his Christian background. And I say background because he himself says he hasn't been to church in five years. So he is a man with a Christian background who's not, well, certainly as far as I can tell from his own comments, he's not a practicing Christian. And so I'm not sure what space exactly he's in, but he copped a lot of flack for that. And one of the responses he gave was he said, you know, when he was a CEO, he said, I wasn't a Christian CEO. I was a CEO who happened to be Christian. Now, in one sense, there's a certain truth to that. But in another sense, I think that's seeding the ground that should never be surrendered. And what I think the better response to say is, yeah, I was a Christian CEO. So in one sense, I, was, I had this job of CEO, but my Christian faith and that Judeo-Christian tradition that I brought to that profoundly informed my behavior and my conduct in that role. And what you really need to do, I think, in that situation is celebrate that and present the truth and the goodness of that and actually say there's a lot of profoundly good things that my Christianity brought to me being a CEO. My Christian call, which was paramount, to, to love neighbor, to care for the vulnerable, that informed my behavior and my actions. The call to compassion the call to the Beatitudes and the Christian Gospels, that informed my behavior as a CEO. And uh, that's really, I think, the more correct response is to say, well, yeah, I was, and what's the problem with that, quite frankly? Because no one would have a problem if I was an atheist CEO, right? Or a Muslim CEO, I presume. 
Um, and so I, I think it's it's a, there's a really important principle here that same is true in political leadership. You're not just a a, a a politician who happens to be a Christian. I think if you're a Christian or a Muslim, a person of faith, you are that Muslim politician. You are that Christian politician, and you shouldn't be ashamed of that. You should allow the goodness and the truth of those faith traditions and that important philosophy and theology that underpins human anthropology, human persons and society and goodness and truth and morality to actually be part of who you are because you bring something valuable, I believe, to the fore in the governance of our country. And I think that really, really matters. Right, that's all I want to say. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, if you want that extra patrons-only exclusive episode of the podcast every single week, patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. The link is in the show notes. $5 or more per month gets you access to those four or five exclusive patrons-only episodes of the Dispatches podcast every single month. Alternately, if you want to leave a one-off contribution, you've just enjoyed this episode, you can do that. There's a tip jar link in today's show notes as well. If you want to leave a one-off contribution just to say thanks for this episode, and I enjoyed it. A huge thank you to all of our patrons. You guys are awesome. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth, and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on The Dispatches. Mm-hmm.